0: Here and Now, the program featuring the news and interests of the African-American community. Here's your host, Sandra Bookman. Coming up, disturbing inequalities in medicine when it comes to people of color. We're going to introduce you to the author of Legacy, a black physician reckons with racism in medicine. And from the streets of the Bronx to the 2024 Olympic Games in Paris, an original member of the New York City Breakers on breakdancing's move to the big time. That's all ahead on this half-hour edition of Here and Now. Black Americans have far worse health outcomes than any other group in the country. That is simply a fact. The racist practices and policies that make it so and the profound, longstanding systemic inequities that continue to endanger communities of color are at the center of a new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Its author is a Harvard-educated physician and respected health equity advocate. Joining us this afternoon, Dr. Uche Blackstock. What a pleasure it is to meet you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: everything about your book is great and everything about your book is disturbing and just reading through it you know it makes you think of some of your own experiences not necessarily with a doctor but in other instances and i thought to myself oh good it's not me (laughs) or it's not just me right what made you feel like, I- I've got to get this down on paper? And, and, and using your own life story as as sort of the launching pad, yes. to me, was brilliant. Thank you,
1: thank you. Well, I wanted to use my my personal story, my mother's story, she was the original Dr. Blackstock, as a way to help readers Connect the dots to why in 2024 we still see these horrific outcomes in terms of black health. Why, why and why and why it is so important to you. Exactly. Exactly. That you know, I was so fortunate to be able to see my mother work in service to her community. She grew up in central Brooklyn, um, you know, in poverty, born to a single mom, and she really had tremendous challenges in her life, but ended up at Brooklyn College, being the first person in her family to graduate from college, and then Harvard Medical School. Um, And after Harvard Medical School, she could have gone anywhere. But she came back to Brooklyn, and she practiced taking care of her family and neighbors, working with other local black physicians to do community health fairs, and work Mm -hmm. in service to her community. So that's what I learned from. Mm -hmm. And that's what inspired my twin sister, Oni, and I to become physicians. And that's what, you know, know, she died prematurely at the age of 47 uh, due to leukemia. But a lot of the health equity advocacy work I do now is really to continue her legacy. What, there's a,
0: reading through the book, there's something, a line you wrote essentially saying, I, I cannot believe that you read a letter, I think, from your mother that was years ago, decades ago, yes. that was essentially describing the same frustrations that you found yourself ex- experiencing. Talk to me about that. And did that help, you know, influence you into to writing this book and doing the work that you do now?
1: Right, yes, yeah, so my mother was making these same observations, more so on a community level in Brooklyn, about you know why are we seeing these, these health inequities that we still see today, and they're even worse today. So even despite advances in innovation, technology, and research, a lot of the health outcomes with respect to black people is actually worse today. Yeah. And so you have to ask why, right, and it's because systemic racism is so deeply embedded in our healthcare system and in our other, other systems um, within our country that that actually, that impacts how long we live. And one of the difficulties um, is that it's difficult to
0: get people to acknowledge that it exists or to change their habits. And even just in my reading, your book, yes, even when they have made the change, they really haven't made the change. It's more for show than rather right. actually making the change. Right, more,
1: more performative. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in the last chapter of the book, I have a call to action for different groups, like even white health professionals. I tell them, your, patient, your black patients and patients of color are dying. Your black colleagues are exhausted from like, the work that we have to do. We need your help. We need you to recognize your, your internal biases we need you to do the, the education and work to learn about medical racism, um, but we also need health, health systems and hospitals to keep track of these inequities and have standardized processes in place to, to intervene when they see maybe black patients aren't getting you know pain prescriptions um, in the same way that white patients are.
0: Yeah, that was one thing about somebody, a question that was asked of students, I think in 2016, about feeling pain and they still, these are medical students that still said,
1: black people don't feel pain the same Mm -hmm. way other, how is that possible? Well, you know what, a lot of these, the myths about us being (laughs) biologically different from other people, it's based in slavery. I mean, you had, white physicians who were revered in their profession, essentially performing and, and, and developing discoveries on enslaved black people. Mm-hmm. So, so those same myths about black people not feeling pain, that gets perpetuated in our medical school curriculums. So that's why in 2016, those students could say the black patient in that case didn't have as much pain as the white patient and 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 gave them a recommended less pain medication for them,
0: which is just absurd to me. You're talking about really brilliant people, oh,
1: yes, <laughs> but, but saying we, that yeah, right, but we also know that health professionals yeah. they you know live like the average American, right they absorb all the mm-hmm. cultural messaging of anti blackness, just like anyone else yeah, right if if you could talk to me because I think when you say it sometimes to people, they don't.
0: Black people will generally believe it, right. just like a woman will believe that there's you know, bias, uh, gender bias, but it's hard to get the man to right. believe it. Just if you can share with us some uh, particular instance uh, in practicing that you've seen patients, uh, when you've thought, what, the, the, you've seen them not getting the care that they deserved and were entitled to, and, and you believe that race was a part right. of the decision-making process. Right, well,
1: a, a lot of it has to do, you know, the, this whole issue of pain, this pain inequity. You know, I've had patients who have come in after repeat visits to the ER for certain certain complaints that were turned home and ended up being misdiagnosed because they were told, oh, you're not in that much pain. Um, and, and an investigation into their source of pain was not done by the health professional. Mm -hmm. So same thing with me. In medical school, I write about in in Legacy how Mm -hmm. I was misdiagnosed with, you know, a a, a delayed diagnosis of appendicitis. I ruptured, I had to go to the ER three times. I I missed a month of medical school, and I was questioned about repeatedly about my sexual history. I was told that I wasn't in that much pain. And it was appendicitis. and I was a medical student. So you can Mm -hmm. imagine if the average lay person going in you know, they may not be able to advocate for myself because I, even as a medical student, I didn't feel like I could. Yeah. So the question is,
0: I know you work every day in trying to change that, trying to educate people, trying to give patients the care that they deserve and listen to them, but how do we change a system I hate to say it, but in a lot of respects, it doesn't want to seem
1: to want to change. I know, and and, and that's why I wrote this book, and to have these words in print and to have that call to action to healthcare systems, hospitals, they need to hold themselves accountable. This is an obligation on their part, medical schools, they have a moral obligation to train health professionals in the way to care for a diverse patient population. And I also call on policymakers, because we know health is not just about health care. Mm-hmm. It's about where you live, uh, you know, access to healthy foods, what kind of employment you have. So I actually call on policymakers to think about health in all policies and to think about uh, re- Giving resources to our communities that we've been deprived of for so long because of systemic racism. And your organization, Advancing Health Equity, I mean this is what you do. This is this is that's my, my third baby, I say. I have, I have two sons, <laughs> seven and nine years old, but Advancing Health Equity is my third baby, and it was my, my way of making a difference of working with health or healthcare organizations to create diverse, inclusive workplaces and to make sure we're providing equitable care to to black patients and patients of color.
0: Do you have a sense that that anybody's, (laughs) and I don't want to sound like Debbie Downer, but do you get the sense since
1: you've been really focused on doing this work that anyone is listening? I do, I do, because you know a lot of the client organizations that come to us, they want to do that deep work. Of mm-hmm. course, it's like a selection bias; like the ones that come to us actually want to do the work. Yeah. But they're nonprofits, they're public health agencies, they're medical schools, so they are out there. We just hope that you know maybe with this book and more of a public discourse about it, um, that we can really talk about how do we create systemic change.
0: You know, we saw, I think, the pandemic demonstrated in a real way. Yes the disparities, uh, who got sickest fastest and stayed sickest longest. So you think we would learn
1: something from that? I know. Did we? You know, I I ask myself that a lot and I I think we did. You know why? Because when I was on air as a health communicator talking about these health inequities Mm -hmm. in the pandemic, I learned that there were some local policymakers across the country that were listening and some of what I was saying informed some of their, the vaccine rollout policies in terms of centering black communities. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are people out there in positions of power and influence listening. And yes, I, I hope that more will. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> I'm say I'm trying that. to be no. positive. No, but I, I think <laughs> no, you I have know. to be. No, I know, um, I know.
0: You, that's why you keep doing the work. Yes. Because you wanna make yes. the change. You, what do they say? Be the change that you want yes. to see. AdvancingHealthEquity.com is your website. Yes. And Legacy, a black physician reckons with racism in medicine. Dr. Uchi Blackstock, I suspect that we will be talking with you again. I would love to. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Thank
1: you. Thank you so
0: much. We'll be right back.
2: People who disappear without a trace. The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's
0: a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
2: For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC
1: podcast wherever you listen.
0: From the streets of New York City to the biggest stage in sports, breaking, also known as break dancing, will make its official debut at the Olympic Games in Paris in 2024. It is an urban dance style that originated in the Bronx and emerged from hip-hop culture. Perhaps no one knows more about the remarkable athleticism it takes to be a successful B-boy or B-girl than our next guest. He is one of the original members of New York City Breakers, Tony Mr. Wave Wesley. What a pleasure it is to meet you. Likewise. And you Thanks look like having me. I, I feel like I should challenge you and say, <laughs> hey, show us what you got right here on the stage. You got to I'm sure you <laughs> would do it. What do you think about the fact that something I think you guys probably started out doing for fun is now going to be an official Olympic sport?
2: I'm not mad at it. Um, and the reason for that from for that example is because when we started to dance, and not just uh, floor moves, break dancing, but popping, locking, all that is tied up under there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we started 17, 18 years old. 16, 18 years old, we had no mentors. There was no one there to say that's a good move, that's dope, keep going, this will mean something someday. We were just doing it for fun, mm-hmm. for freedom, you yeah. can almost say, just loving the music. It making it to the Olympics is a whole different platform. Yeah. And the reason why I say that's because kids get to see teenagers on a higher platform. Mm-hmm. And they get to understand that that takes tenacity, that takes strength, that takes, you know, focus. And they start to learn at an early age. Yeah. You know, to, 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 for goals and to try to do something. So the Olympics is definitely, I think it's a necessary tool for our culture.
0: Yeah. Hey, that is a big step up from from on the street corner to be an official Olympic sport. And, you know, I guess it kind of coincides with the 50th anniversary of hip hop and hip hop. I I think it's the probably the most influential genre in the culture right now, whether you're talking music, fashion, or, or just about anything else these days. Um, let me ask you about that. Does it surprise you, the the longevity of hip hop, and, and breaking is all part of that culture, and the, the influence that it has had, and that it has lasted 50 years, and it's gonna be 50 years and beyond?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say it surprises me. Um, the New York City Breakers, we knew that in 84, we did a show called The Salute to the All-Star Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I danced on stage with Ben, we all danced on stage with Ben Vereen. And at the that evening was a lot of Olympians there with stars, Mr. T, Carol Burnett, you go on. They all were there, Muhammad Ali. Um, we posed it to be a future Olympic sport. And we all signed a document. Mm-hmm. And they gave us these- In 1984? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the New York City Breakers kind of predicted that. Um, which is super dope. Um, but you said something about the, uh, the sport itself and the dance itself. Mm-hmm. It was more than a dance when we were doing it, it was more about the elements of hip hop. Mm-hmm. Hip hop is not a dance, it's not a DJ, it's the elements, it's all of us combined that made it so pure and so strong and last so long. I always say in in the 80s, hip hop 80s is is Similar to Woodstock 70s, it'll never be repeated. Yeah, That day, that time, that moment will never be repeated.
0: So talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, being at the start uh, of this. And you're right, it is more than a dance. I don't know, there's probably one in a hundred persons that can actually do all the moves, whether it's popping, locking, spinning, whatever it is that you're doing. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like to be at the forefront of that. You guys were just having fun, but you know, what what influenced you? Where did all that come from?
2: I always say that, you know, when we started, it was a blessing. It came from God because we had no technology. We had no schools, no classes to teach any of this. How is it that all these kids in a destitute space, yeah. the Bronx, are able to develop this and we could not get across town. We had no cars, we were kids. We didn't know what was happening across town and we were able to, uh, it's the love of music, one. Mm-hmm. So we all fell in love with music and that's basically because of our parents playing Sam Cooke and Otis Reddy and all these, James Brown. You know, uh, I contribute some of it to Michael Jackson and that's what drove me towards the, the, the dance. He did the robot and Dancing Machine came out and it was just, it was just electrifying in it, 74, I think that was. But what drove us to it and made us want to, the passion, mm-hmm. was because we had nothing else. Yeah, you know, It was a destitute area, there were no stores, there was no jobs, there were, uh, we were left to survive by government. And so when this came along and some people had the heart to take it from the project's apartments and bring them down to the parks and to the street, meaning the music and the huge speakers, it's a lot into the develop of our culture. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you have to give the DJs and those engineers, their engineers yeah. uh, with the wherewithal f- to plug into the lamps. You know, they let us play all night. There was no police interruption because there were no crimes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, crime actually went down. You, you
0: guys were just having a good time. Yes, ma'am. The, the, I, I still, I gotta go back to that question. It's it's, it's more than just having rhythm. Mm-hmm. It, it truly is a sport. These are moves that people, normal people on the dance floor can't make. You know, right. We could pretend to do it, but most of us probably can't. Um, but- Was that 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 just learned over time? I guess you taught each other. Somebody had a move that you loved, and then you replicated and added your own thing to it, or
2: actually no, that (laughs) would be called biting. Okay, and we never tried to copy one another. Mm -hmm. We never tried to mimic. We were part of the dance, part of the growth of our culture. Even the DJs, the rhymes, they would never say someone else's rhymes or copy them because you wanted to be your own, you know, your your own energy. Um, again, when I when I say to you that the dance, along with everything else, if you go back to the 40s and you go back to the 1600s, mm-hmm. go to Africa, go to Latin America, they were doing that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one of my good friends, his name is uh, Grandmaster Kaz. And what he says in his slogan is, we didn't invent anything. We reinvented everything. Okay. So you know you have to give it to those praise dancers Mm -hmm. you have to dance is just to let go yeah it's to know your space to know your energy you know mind it's it's to allow your 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 mind to be in touch with your body
0: so uh, what would you say olympic judges should be looking for when
2: the olympic judges hopefully they pick the best judges that know our culture that's the first piece they have to look for power they have to look for um, coordination they got to look for um, durability and they got to look for technique the neatness of the dance no Mm -hmm. different than gymnastics or or, um, you know, the ladies on the bar. It's a certain yeah. kind of technique that you, you look for.
0: Okay.
2: And they're gonna be one-on-ones, it's not gonna be groups, so.
0: Yeah, you're yeah. excited to see it though?
2: The world is excited to see <laughs> it. Um, it's sold out in two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, um, it will be magnificent and it will break records. Um, there are billion B-Boys. Yeah. There's so many of us around the world and everyone will be chiming in to see us win something.
0: Yeah. So I know that you're working on a documentary series through your production company, Real Sun Productions. You Can't Erase Me. Talk to me a little bit about that.
2: Well, because we were so young mm-hmm. and we were the pioneers, we were the innovators. We were the reason for today's culture, today's hip hop. Um, we had no supervision, we had no one to tell us, hey, this is the best route to go, this is the best thing to do. So in that walk, we lost quite a bit. You know, for example, I did Viewmaster. My crew did Viewmaster, we never got a dime, they went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. We did comic books and records and a lot of us, you know, did it for the love of it in the beginning, not knowing it would grow to a financial... Mm -hmm.
0: To be what it is today. Mm -hmm. Explosion.
2: Um, we got left behind, a, a lot of us, a lot of my peers. So You Can't Erase Me is bigger than me. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than us. It's, it's just this category this for, for, for this period. A lot of these guys who kind of pushed through and made it happen and, and, and kind of blew it up, they didn't receive the funds, the money, and now they're getting older. So those are the true stories. And the only way that we were able to tell our truth not get behind a company to tell, the, tell their side of the truth. Mm-hmm. One thing I try to do in the documentary realm is to tell the truth of the artist or the subject and have them still looking, standing proud, being proud. Mm-hmm. So You Can't Erase Me is about the person, the human that happens to be a legend and we have nothing left for our stories.
0: And you want to make sure that story, the real story, gets out there. Yes, ma'am. So if we send people to youcan'teraseme.net Yes, ma'am. and realsongproductions.net, they can find out specifically about the projects that you're working on and, and, and hear your story.
2: And even more, you can see trailers of what I've already done. I've done 10 documentaries. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about Al- Alonzo from the, uh, World Class Wrecking Crew, DJ Yella from NWA, JJ Fad, these stories are all compiled, but we were all, another thing that people don't understand in our culture that we all knew each other. Mm -hmm. And we've segregated it to seem like Rakim is by himself and on that side of the town, krs One is by himself when we all were kids in these neighborhoods.
0: And, and, and making this thing we call yeah. hip hop.
2: Yep, so I can validate those stories. I was there too.
0: Okay, Tony, Mr. Wave, Wesley, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. You're very welcome. And I can't wait to talk to you, have a chance to talk to you in 2024. Yes, ma'am. When they're handing out that gold, silver, and bronze medal.
2: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Thank you so much. You're
2: welcome.
0: We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on Here and Now. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can watch at abc7ny.com or listen to our podcast wherever you subscribe. If you'd like to comment or share your story, email us at abc7ny or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. I'm Sandra Bookman. Enjoy the rest of your day.